right, everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. Isaac here with my friend Jay and very special guest, author, blogger, apologist, professor, Mary Jo Sharp. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, it's really great to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about an issue that kind of just seems to always be around. It's this issue is, is is the story of Jesus, the story of the Gospels, a copy of pagan myths. And it's a interesting thing because you see it pop up still in pop culture everywhere. Um, we had you speak on it a couple years ago, and at the time you heard it on, you could hear on Bill Maher, The View. I've heard it recently on the Joe Rogan podcast. I've seen people just in casual conversation say something along the lines of, oh, you believe in Jesus. You know, uh, everyone uh, knows that the story of Jesus is just copying older pagan myths. It's just a copycat type of thing. So why don't you articulate the problem um, and what do they mean by Jesus is a copy of pagan myth? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for asking. Um, so the basic objection, which you already formulated it uh, in short order, is that Jesus's story is a compilation or a copy of previously existing religious mythology. Robert M. Price, uh, he's a scholar who likes to say Christianity is a historicized synthesis of mainly Egyptian, Jewish, and Greek mythologies. So um, when, we, when we're talking about this, we're talking about that all the basic elements of Jesus's story can be found in other stories. That's what's being said. So the thrust of the argument is intended to show that none of these religions are true, but just copies of some basic story that people used over the years as an explanation for things which society wasn't advanced enough to explain, like science or certain philosophy. Um, of course, there's implications here that um, by calling Jesus a myth, that uh, then we're saying there's no historical Jesus, there's no death and resurrection, there is no salvation for mankind, or no afterlife. So these are some of the uh, um, implications. And further assumptions that are contained in this argument, as we're looking at it here, is that um, you know, religions, <laughs> some people talk about this argument in the way, like in the zeitgeist vein, zeitgeist the movie, which maybe we'll bring up later on. But um, they say that, you know, religions are really, the story is really being used in order to exercise power over the masses. And uh, another vein in which it's being used is to say, maybe you're less intelligent if you believe in Jesus, because his story is derived from these like simplistic mythologies that humans have abandoned over the years post-enlightenment. So the, I mean, it's kind of that was a lot, but just yeah. basically, could, could you give us give us an example by like the copy? So I know like in Zeitgeist there was like it's like Jesus is a copy of Horus or Osiris, and we know this because they both contain resurrection stories. Yeah, yeah, that's actually. I mean, you gave the example right there. <laughs> Jesus is a yeah. People will say, um, and I, I say this um, in like when I was at. Your church speaking uh, years ago, I was talking about Bill Maher, who was on The View, and he said, Jesus is an exact, Jesus's story is an exact copy of Horace. Um, and then he'll say that Horace's story had pre-existed Jesus's for, you know, centuries, um, so if not millennia. So he'll, that's the, the argument is that these story, the story of Jesus was in existence prior to um, the Christian's putting together this story. In the Zeitgeist movie, 
you know, visually what they, I just watched it last night. Um, and what they do visually is they'll go on this very fast paced diatribe and they'll show these images of, um, all sorts of deities. And then they'll just list born of a virgin born on December 25th. Um, 12 followers or disciples, uh, died three days resurrected, And, you know, it's one of those things, which is true, I think, just in human psychology. If you say something authoritatively enough, then it just sort of, you watch it and you're like, holy cow, this is... So, (laughs) you know, for for most of our audience who, you know, there's a lot of younger people, college students, and um, a lot of folks who are are trying to to reach younger people, um, talk about some of those specifics. Where are these ideas coming from? And how is like the Zeitgeist movie, just as an example, how are they putting these things together like that? And really, historically, how accurate is some of this stuff? (laughs) <laughs> so we cover everything. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's start with like, where is this coming from? So this is an old argument. Um, it's actually not unknown to even Paul himself, who was u- in Acts 17, who was using comparative um, religious ideology in order to talk to the men of Athens. And so he did that. It's um, something that we should be familiar with. Actually, we, we don't really see that in Acts 17 until we encounter this argument. And we're like, oh, wow, look at Paul was using comparative uh, religions uh, and mythology there to speak to the men of Athens. Uh, but then we also see, you know, Justin Martyr treating that this is not just another one of, it's not the story of these other gods. Uh, so it's very early, but who formalizes it is we get this argument in the 1800s from a um, philosopher and historian, Bruno Bauer. And he's the first guy to systematically argue that Jesus never existed. And then from his work, it just carries on into all of these other compar- comparative religions. That whole field just becomes really um, popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Egyptology, all of this, you know, with all those archaeological finds in Egypt, and the, it just becomes real popular. So that's where it's emanating from. Uh, various treatments of it range from like C.S. Lewis to, um, to all the way up to the 80s where you're dealing with some of the brightest minds in Christianity like Ronald Nash and Edwin Yamayuchi and even Bruce Metzger, you know, a Greek scholar treating this argument in the 80s. Uh, but what really made it popular again, what brought it, you know, from the 1800s throughout the 1900s and then really flared it up again was Joseph Campbell's work, The Power of Myth. He had a public broadcasting service miniseries um, which was named The Power of Myth after the book. And this really popularized it in a broader audience, and it brought it you know, up to the minds of people. Uh, once you have the internet come on the scene where anybody can post anything, right now you've got people who are rehashing this whole idea. And, and what you see with Zeitgeist, which is a great movie to bring up, is uh, you see him using what I call a Lord Raglan list. So you've got this guy, Lord Raglan, who in 1936, he publishes a work in which he says, like, there's all these traits we would expect to find in the epic, the story of the epic hero. And he lists these out. And so Lord Raglan's list is sort of being manipulated and, and turned, and, you know, it's the, you know, the, he's a prince, the epic hero is a prince. He has a, uh, he struggles with his background. He's, you know, somebody's seeking after him. It's all these generalities about who this person is. And he says, this is the story you find throughout all religions. 
So I, I'm not sure if I answered everything you asked. No, it's great. But, he had a long list. He had a long list. Yeah, we, we started with the so, history. He asked for the meaning kind of, of life, uh, explanation <laughs> yeah, of the yeah, cosmological right? argument. Uh, I think so. I think that was in there too. <laughs> what, what was, do you, do you know the name of the author who wrote, because the other book that was influential, um, that was quoted a lot, but was rightly debunked, was either the 12 or the 16 crucified messiahs. Oh, I should know that. I should know um, that, and I don't have that on but, tap. But it was basically making the same argument that the story of, like what you just articulated with the myth thing, is that the story of Jesus kind of dying and going into the belly of the well and being crucified, and well, that's happened with all these other major world religions throughout history. And the problem is, is it's kind of how Jay said, when someone says it confidently and actually does some, puts like a slide up there with Jesus, <laughs> Horus, 12 disciples virgin birth, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and I remember specifically in the, when I was a youth pastor when Zeitgeist came out, I mean, this had, has millions of views, kids from the youth group going like, oh my gosh, like everything I believe is a, a lie. What are, what are the, the, the actual facts when it comes to this? Is the story of Horus and Osiris and these other deities, do they contain all those similarities? Are the people making them up? Is, is there a grain of truth in it, or is it just fabrication? Like, what, what does the actual historical record and the, the sources say? That's great. Thank you. And I, and I got the guy's name for you. It's Kersey Graves. Kersey Graves is the world's 16 crucified saviors. I'm more familiar with Achara S. and Timothy Freck and Peter Gandy's work. So, um, okay, so what are the actual facts? So it, when I talk about how we handled this argument, you know, what should you do if you encounter this argument? Because we don't talk about this a lot in church, so you're right. You know, somebody goes to church all their life and they hear this is the story of Jesus and, you know, they maybe go into depth, maybe not. Maybe they have some apologetics going on, maybe not. We don't know, but uh, they, they go off to college and surely somebody in college is going to use this because that's a lot. I mean, that's where it's popular. You find it a lot amongst college age. So somebody comes up to him and says, oh, well, you know, that same, th all the same elements are in Horace's story. They, Horace, um, you know, died. He was resurrected. He had 12 disciples, all this stuff. So what I always suggest is that you actually take those parallels and look at them. Um, so go read the story of Horace from the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Pyramid Text. And then actually read Jesus's story. <laughs> That's the one thing I'm finding is a lot of people are trusting in somebody else's work. They're not actually reading the Gospels for themselves. So you need to actually read Jesus's story and then set it against these others. So let's look at one of these, you know, are there parallels? Well, surely there are parallels because we're talking about religion. So are people going to be praying? Are they going to be, you know, are there rituals? Are there observances? Oh, yes, definitely. Those are parallel, right? Because we're talking about the search for, is there an afterlife? Is there a God? How do I know that uh, I'm going to heaven or am I going to hell? It's a common thread throughout mankind. And so the religious um, views, as well as just philosophical views out there, are all going to be trying to treat these same, um, these same aspects of life. So you're going to find parallels. But now, do these parallels, are they a one-to-one -one with Jesus? Are they the same answer? Are they exactly what we see in Jesus's story. So let's look at, you know, like a resurrection. Um, or actually we could back up and do <laughs> a virgin birth because that's a real fun one. Um, when we look at Horus's virgin birth. So Horus is the, he's the son of Isis and Osiris, who are two gods 
who had sex while they were still fetuses in their God uh, mother's womb. <laughs> so they're, they're still fetuses, <laughs> fetus gods inside of a, a, a goddess mother's womb. They fall in love as fetuses and they have sex in the womb. And that's, you know, the concept. It's, it's, you know, just like Jesus's story, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one, because there's so many different stories of Horus and Osiris, because they have been around for a long time with all these Egyptian dynasties. So you're going back to 2500 BC, things like that. Um, so the other story is that Isis found the dead Osiris uh, and put him on a barge to float him back up the Nile. And while he was dead, she received uh, semen from his body um, it, while she was in the form of a bird. And so I, I, <laughs> I asked myself, in what way is this a similar story to Jesus's? Um, so that's an example. Uh, Osiris is the, uh, he's the offspring of an affair between two gods. Two gods have an affair and it actually ends up causing a lot of trouble, causes Osiris's death because his brother gets angry with him. And then we have Mithras who's uh, this is my favorite one because, you know, there's a lot of gods. I focus sort of on Horus, Osiris, and Mithras. Um, but Mithras is born out of a rock. Uh, he jumps out of a rock on the banks of a river under a sacred fig tree. So that's my favorite because people are just glazing over this and saying, well, everybody's got a virgin birth. Okay, well, let's look at that. I mean, you're extending the word virgin to include a rock, <laughs> and I guess maybe you could say that's a virgin because I guess a rock has probably never had sexual intimacy with a human. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's the legitimacy of the argument. Yes, technically, right. the rock was a virgin because it was a <laughs> rock. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's kind of how this is being stretched. And yeah. that's sort of not only with Jesus in the Gospels, but we see that um, with other stories in the Old Testament, particularly with even the creation account where, say, the Babylonian Enuma Eli starts with chaotic waters, and then they go, oh, don't you know Genesis 1 starts with chaotic waters, and so they're just stealing from a Babylonian document. It's like, yeah, but when you actually read about the waters going on in each story, the, the similarities just are, are so different. It's silly, like a rock. They fall apart, yeah. It's silly. They and it's, they it, start to fall apart, yeah. There's like a sense of intellectual dis dishonesty almost with it. It's yeah. Like, like, well, we should be acknowledging where there are similarities. Like C.S. Lewis made the argument, you know, that these pre-existing myths, they're not all fake. You know, he believes that there's some elements to them that are the story of mankind. That's what he believed. I shouldn't say that they're not all fake. I should say they have elements of what he believes is the grand narrative, is the actual story. And he said that these myths are preceding, he called it like the grand myth or, you know, something like that, where he's saying it's, or the myth made fact, this is the actual story of humanity. So you find elements of the truth in these other myths. So that's what he argued. Uh, but then when you stretch it out, you know, past credulity, you're like, what do I, I mean, it, you're right. It, it smacks of intellectual dishonesty to stretch these and cherry pick them to the point where they're ridiculous. Yeah, I've heard uh, the way another way of talking about what C.S. Lewis was articulating was that somehow the story of Jesus Christ uh, is embedded in every good piece of literature. Like you can't, you can't write a good story without drawing upon these sort of universal archetypical realities that are, that are in all human conscience. It's just there. And it's like whenever, I mean, it's like anything I was watching Lord of the Rings, uh, 
last night because my daughter's four and she wants to watch Lord of the Rings. I'm like, I don't, I don't think ready for Lord of the Rings yet. <laughs> um, so I was watching and be like, okay, because she, well, she's because she goes, well, then what age can I go? And I'm like, ten or something. I don't know. I got to watch these again. How, br- you know, I remember the Hobbit wasn't too bad, but I think Lord of the Rings pretty brutal. Uh, you can you can re- reading Narnia is okay, but as you're watching um, Lord of the Rings, you're going. Oh, this this Aragorn story. This this is just the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is just oh, you know, and it, it it's 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 everywhere. This this i those ideas, and that's what probably Joseph Campbell was tapping into a little bit with a kind of those myths. So what? So okay. So the historical similarities aren't there, and people, if they wanted to check that out, how do they how do they get to the sources? So if they don't just believe, because one of the things is people are just believing those guys' word. When they quote, oh, Horus, Jesus is a copy of Horus. So don't just take our words. Where can you read some of the, the sources yourself? Yes, that's the power of the internet. <laughs> I love this because we've got so much access to these works, uh, the sources, the primary sources translated for us into English. So you can go to um, a great site would be the University of Pennsylvania they have the entire Egyptian Book of the Dead available, translated online for you. Um, they also have a digital library containing over 2 million books. So if you're looking for the, the Greek mythology, the classics, you can go to University of Pennsylvania and they'll have it. Search for them. Search for Homer's works and, and you can find these things. Um, also, so University of Pennsylvania, another uh, two other sites that you can go read these, uh, the cla- classicreader.com. That's a great place to go. And um, Great Books and Classics is another online site where it'll have all these old myths. And you can even search for the gods that you're looking for or whatever and find them. And so, like, if you don't know what the stories are or who wrote them, just search for your gods and, and it'll show you, you know, where to go. It'll point you in that direction. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to link all of those um, on our show notes. Yeah. And, and you can take a look at those two million books. <laughs> all, all two million. But isn't, isn't that fabulous? No, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, totally. This is actually uh, the guys that have argued with this with me. Um, one guy in particular on my site, he he came into it back when I used to do a lot of um, debating on Facebook <laughs> in the old days of Facebook. Uh, <laughs> he came on and that was his argument. And so I just pointed him and said, like, go read these for yourself. And he came back. He was a math professor. And he came back and said, wow, I'm actually kind of embarrassed that I ever made this argument. Like, because I can't find Jesus's story in Horace, or I can't find these stories there. Is is anybody arguing this any more on the academic scholarly level? I mean, it, it's pretty much a pop level argument, but there seems to be a little resurgence in sort of the Jesus myth guys right now, where it's just Jesus absolutely never existed. Um, but what what does the the current space look like? I mean, is it something that's being argued about at those levels, or is it really a pop level argument? Yeah, that's a great question because um, for a while it sort of it seemed to resurge into academia as myth. So not just like the copycat theory is mostly what I'm treating, but Jesus as legend or myth resurfaced in you know the 80s real strongly, and that's why it merited these responses from top scholars in the world. And uh, so I thought by the time I got to it in 2008-ish, I thought, wow, I'm only seeing it in the popular realm. Why is it so popular? I wasn't actually seeing scholars on it. Um, And in fact, when I wrote on this for a thesis, I got told, why are you doing this? This is a dead argument in scholarship. 
on multiple occasions, people told me that. So copycat theory, the theory that the Christians just pulled straight from um, you know, other mythologies and just utilize that. So it's the same story. That one, I believe, is the one that's um, had better days and is dying out in scholarship, if not dead. Uh, Jesus has never existed. You got guys like Robert M. Price who argue this, or that he um, was so, there was so much legend wrapped around this person that the person that we think of as Jesus is not an existent person. Um, so that, that sort of thing uh, is what you would hear. But I mean, even guys like Bart Ehrman, who's one of the most vocal non-Christian Bible scholars, says that Jesus certainly existed, (laughs) as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees. And also, he states that the existence of Jesus and his crucifixion by the Romans is attested to by a wide range of sources, including Josephus and Tacitus. And and so it's not not a real strong, I don't think this has a real strong... um, basis in the people who are actually doing the work in these fields. You get it from people who are like in other fields who just want to make a quick comment. Like most people don't believe in most of the gods. I just go one God further. Thank you, Richard Dawkins. You know, th- those kind of things are going on. The the rhetoric is powerful though, when they say that. And that's why, you know, yeah. why apologetics is so necessary. Cause you go, okay, that's, that sounded really nice in a tweet, but re- reality is, isn't isn't that. Um, and just so our listeners know, when, when you quoted Bart Ehrman, I mean, this is one of the world's leading atheist critics of Christianity. And Started he, out as an evangelical. Yeah. And yeah, and now is one of the leading And he just says critics. it in a, like a smug way, like, you're foolish if you don't believe Jesus was a historical figure crucified under Pontius Pilate, like you're a fool type of thing. Yeah. So it holds weight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's not a Christian by any means, uh, yeah. but he just thinks he's it's a historian. Yeah, yeah. Respect to story. yeah Very, and he's the guy that's been writing all those orthodox corruption of scripture and all this stuff, which Christians have been having to respond to. So yeah, he does pull some weight as far as being kind of like enemy attestation, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Mary jo, I, I wanted to ask you something that you're, you're getting at that I think is a larger sort of really crucial um, point, especially for what we do here at the Regeneration Project. Um, you know, we live in a, you mentioned Twitter, Isaac, we live in a Twitter social media fueled world where uh, long format anything is is not that popular, and we'd much rather we are looking for the very quick 140, 280 character stuff, and that that sort of way of thinking lends itself to shock value, you know. So it is it is really captivating to be able to tweet out in 280 characters, Jesus was a myth, he's based on Horus an ancient Egyptian God. You tweet that out. And if I'm 18 and I grew up in the church, I'm like, what? And then I see the little screenshot from Zeitgeist with all the parallels and I'm just captivated at that point. But what you're talking about, you know, when you mention there's 2 million books you can access on UPenn's <laughs> website and you know, what that's inviting people into is to do the work and yeah. apologetics is doing the work. But if we really are talking about Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, the fate of the human race, I mean, what else is there that's worth doing the work for? So talk a little bit about, I mean, you you mentioned some of those resources, but talk a little bit about maybe 
you know, you also mentioned how you sort of got into this maybe 10 years ago or so, but on a really um, practical level for the average listener, um, go, maybe going to some of those resources that you mentioned, uh, are, do you have other thoughts on maybe how they might approach, like when this comes up? on their college campus, you know, one of their professors or one of their friends says, Hey, you know, that Jesus total myth, right? Like what would be like a good, just very first basic step that somebody could take, um, to researching this and studying it and, and finding the truth. Yeah. So I, I usually give like three steps to take and they're not, they're, they're successively more difficult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first one is that if you hear this argument and it causes you some like pause, you're like, wow, I've never heard this. I wonder if this is true. Then go read the stories. So that's why we were giving out primary source locations where you yeah. can go read. Don't read all of them. Just what did you hear that Jesus' story is a copy of who? You know, So ask, who, who is he a copy of? Is it Horus? Is it Dionysus? Who's he a copy of? And then go look up that particular God and then read the story for that God. Uh, so that's the first step. And then the second thing is when somebody, when you watch something like Zeitgeist and you see the parallels, uh, as you've read the stories, start pulling their, what their story is, like start pulling it out in your own outline form and compare it to Jesus. You know, what was the virgin birth? Were they the same thing? You know, like is somebody jumping out of a rock? Are there two God fetuses having sex in their mother goddess's womb? That's so my favorite. One. <laughs> you can have the rock one as your favorite. No, the two baby making fetuses. Uh, is that's, it's, a, it's a great one, isn't it? I mean, if you just, so just start putting them together, uh, looking at the parallels. And then the final thing that I tell people to do, and this is the most difficult, and this is where I really feel the copycat argument fails the hardest, is to set everything back into context. And that's the problem with this. Um, you know, we're using terms fast and loose here in the 21st century and not paying attention to, if we say resurrection, what does that mean to somebody who's an Egyptian worshiping Osiris in, you know, 1500 BC? What does that mean to them? We can't just say, oh, everybody's got a resurrection. Oh, we all know what that means. Because as we look at Acts 17, what Paul's doing when I was talking about he was using like sort of comparative religions approach is he's talking about, he's talking to the men of Athens who are the studied men. He's talking to these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, they say to him, what are you talking about? They don't say, whoa, hold on. That's the Greek God. That's We've it. heard we this before. Yeah. They actually say, what is this new teaching that you're bringing to us? And then they march him off to the Areopagus to talk to the, the wise men of the city in order to, hey, what, you know, figure out what Paul's saying. And I think people forget that. Like N.T. Wright makes this statement in um, his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, in which he says that, um, you know, resurrection meant something different to the pagan than it does to uh, a, uh, a post-first century or post-Easter you know, morning first century Christian. Uh, resurrection to the pagan meant to release from the body to go be with the gods in the spirit realm. That's where they wanted to go. Uh, but to the Christian, after Jesus rises from the dead, uh, it's very different. It's a it's a new it's a resurrection to a new body, uh, a new life. It's we, they see Jesus physically walking around on the earth, and he is considered the firstborn of the resurrection. He's not often some mysterious underworld where we're hoping to be released to. So we're just using terms fast and loose. Um, 
that's one of the problems. And then the other, I'll just say this one short form, guys. Um, the other problem, there's massive theological differences in what the pagan myths are doing versus what like Judeo Christianity is doing. And there's massive philosophical issues uh, that are different. Like the nature of reality is completely different in the pagan myths. You know, they, they believe in magic. They believe, they believe they can manipulate the divine. Why? Why would they think that? Why would they think their little magical rites are going to actually make the ground fertile or make their people fertile? Because they've got this view of continuity where they believe it's like pantheism where everything flows in and out of each other, the divine and the created are one. So yeah, they can control the divine. If I make an idol and I do something to it, it's, I'm doing it to the God. That's totally not Christianity. We have a completely different worldview of transcendence that God is wholly other than his creation. He's not one and the same with it. There's no way we can manipulate him. No way. This is why magic in Christianity is not a thing. It fades out. Um, this is why uh, Christians, though we pray, we don't believe we're actually manipulating or causing God to do something with our prayers or our rituals. So it's, it's such a different worldview, and that's completely ignored. Yeah, and the gods are often more immoral and crazy than the humans in those stories. Um, <laughs> right. And we're in Christianity, again, you have the transcendent and the imminent, but all good, all powerful God who cannot be thwarted or manipulated. You mentioned uh, the N.T. Wright work. That That's a perfect example of, of words not meaning the same thing. I mean, for those of you who want to grab that, it's like 700 pages of looking <laughs> at all the sources to... in. In the day of the first century, what did resurrection mean? And so relevant to the topic, resurrection in a pagan myth might mean this goddess comes back every spring to fertilize the land. That's what they mean by resurrection. And what Christians meant is a historical, physical resurrection, and that was completely unheard of. N.T. Wright does a great job of demonstrating, even if that was possible in a pagan worldview, no one would want it. No one went to go back to their physical dead body because their worldview was so different. But the Jewish worldview demanded that a good God would bring justice here physically. So that's a great, great work. It's a long work, but it's it's worth reading. It's like, you remember, it's like six, 700 pages. It's like, yeah, that's why I laugh. It's like half of the two million. (laughs) (laughs) It's, but it's worth it. It's worth it to dig through that. I mean, if, I could see somebody being mistaken on this argument because they just first encountered it and the church didn't teach on it. So they don't know what to do with this, or maybe they're not Christian. They weren't like me. I wasn't raised in the church and you know, I, I didn't know the Christian story, but if I heard this, I might be like, Oh, that makes sense. But, and that's okay. But if you're going to go after this and you're going to tell Christians they're wrong and absolutely wrong because Jesus is this myth then you should do the hard work, right? You should dig into what the top scholars in the world are saying on both sides of this. And that's where we've, um, we've really failed with this argument is we've let it become this Twitter soundbite argument. And so, you know, we're be- it, it's sad that that's where we're at. But, you know, I, I always try to caveat, not everybody has time to do all of this, but I'm, that's why I'm glad you guys are hosting this particular show on this issue. This is a... Um, this particular objection is on the basis of not doing the work. Like once you do the work, you start to find out that the copycat uh, version here is just, it's not, it's not credible. It falls apart. I've heard you talk about too, uh, the, the flip side of it too. If there is evidence of copycat going on, it's people changing earlier stories after 
the Christian movement takes off to make their stories look more parallel to the Christian account. So if, if there is any evidence, it appears that people are trying to copy Christianity after, especially after it starts starts to spread. And so, if again, it's one of those things which you're being accused of isn't true. If anything, it's it's the one pointing the figure, finger that could be guilty. Right. That's so that you got some post, um, not post hoc. Sorry, you got some chronology problems, uh, like especially with Mithra. Uh, when people say uh, Mithra, the Roman god that's being worshipped at the time that Jesus is on the scene. Yeah, most of the what we have from Mithras is later. It postdates the entrance of Christianity into the world, and the inscriptions we have and the Mithraic temples that we found—they're all—they all, all postdate the influence of Christianity all across that area. So, yeah, the borrowing would be the other way around, um, and you've got several of those things going on. Yeah. Hey guys, we're taking a quick break uh, from the episode to tell you about some of our partners in ministry. Um, First, uh, Eternity Bible College. Eternity Bible College is uh, an awesome school in Southern California with campuses all over the country and a full online program. And they offer fully accredited um, undergrad degrees in Bible and theology and a variety of other uh, majors. And one of their missions actually is to make sure that their students all graduate um, completely debt-free. So it's an amazing school doing amazing work. If you're interested in um, any any sort of ministry uh, as a vocation or the mission field, um, I can't recommend the school enough. So go to eternitybiblecollege.com to find out more. Um, And if you're looking for a graduate degree, our partners in ministry from day one um, have been Western Seminary up in Portland, Oregon, again, with campuses all over the country and a full online program. Um, Western Seminary is an incredible school offering both master's degrees and doctorate degrees in a variety of areas um, pertaining to theology, ministry, and counseling. Um, and and uh, they've got a world-class faculty, um, some of the best and brightest minds in the world of, of theology and pastoral ministry. So uh, go to westernseminary.edu to find out more. Um, Lastly, uh, we want you to mark your calendars for Saturday, October 27th, which is the day of our next large annual Regeneration Forum event. Um, This is an event that we have every single year and uh, right here in the Bay Area of California. And um, it's just an amazing day to get together with hundreds of other people, uh, tons of young people, people really interested in reaching new generations to learn and grow and be inspired together. Um, This year, we are focusing the day on tackling the issues of heaven and hell and the supernatural. These are questions we've been getting for several years now, and so we've got um, world-class speakers coming in, John Ortberg, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler, as well as several others. Um, It's going to be an incredible day. You can find out more and register at our website, regenerationproject.org, and um, get all the info there, register there. The last few years, our event has completely sold out. So uh, make sure you and your group and your friends get together, um, go online and uh, get your tickets as soon as possible. And now back to our episode with Mary Jo Sharp. You mentioned, and maybe to to take a a turn and get to um, a little bit of your story and your work, you mentioned you weren't always uh, a Christian. Tell us how you became a Christian, how you got into apologetics, 
and then maybe we can follow up with uh, what's on the uh, horizon for you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. So I wasn't, I was, I'm from Portland, Oregon and I was, um, not raised in church. So if you know anything about the culture in Portland, Oregon, it's very different from where I live now, uh, especially religiously because I live in Texas. And so lots of people go to church. It's just a sort of a cultural Christianity feel down here, but that just wasn't the case where I grew up. And, uh, so grew up outside of church, grew outside of a cultural Christianity. And, uh, I really actually thought that religion was kind of the, for the, the weird people. <laughs> like I was the normal one without any belief. And there were those people that were Christians. They were nice, but you know, that was weird. So, um, that was my view growing up. I actually had a band director. For those of people who don't know, I taught in the public schools. I taught music. Uh, I was a band teacher for several years. And that's what I wanted to do. Like to this day, I still see myself as a band director. <laughs> I, I did not know that. That is yeah, awesome. Like, I wanted to take a symphony orchestra. I like teach in college and then go up and take my own Boston Pop Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> that is great. But, it's not too late. But, it's never yeah. too late. <laughs> got thwarted a little bit. Um, but so my high school band director who had never shared his faith with anyone before, because again, in the Northwest, uh, religion was seen as more private of an issue and you didn't just talk about it with others. Uh, so he had never shared his faith, but he felt a burden for me. Like he really should share his faith with me. So he did. And he gave me a Bible and I, I read that Bible, uh, my senior year of high school. And that was what turned me towards believing that there's possibly a God. I, th I thought pretty sure there was a God. This started to make sense to me, uh, especially with the writing of guys like Luke, who are just so matter of fact, like he's just laying down the facts. There's no embellished language. It, it doesn't read like mythology. No, no baby making fetuses. <laughs> right. No jumping out of racks. Um, so I was... I was reading that and I came to belief in God. Um, so I decided I should go check out what it was that I thought, you know, God, what, what, are, what are the churches saying about God? And in college, I started visiting churches and I finally came to a church where they presented the gospel in a way that it made sense to me. And at the age of 20, I actually became a believer in God. So it's kind of funny because we're worried about sending our kids off to college and they leave the faith and I was the complete opposite. <laughs> so I became a Christian at 20 and... The whole apologetics thing happened later on when I went through a time of doubting what I believed and why I believed it. And uh, that was due to the hypocrisy I saw in the church. Mm. So what you started doing the apologetics then kind of to help yourself, like to, to save your crisis of faith. It wasn't like, I'm going to go help people who are struggling in the faith. It was like, no, I need, I need it. Yeah. 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 That, that, I, good. Definitely. I remember that's that was the first all the first apologetics books I was reading it was just to answer all of my my own questions. It wasn't because of anything else. It was like man, and then to even know that there was people out there that were were doing those things because I don't know there I didn't even know what when I was eighteen I don't know what apologetics was. I was barely figuring out that there's people talking about these issues. So how did you then after getting into that for yourself end up? I mean, you're a professor of apologetics now. How did it become one of your main like life goals. I mean, you write on it, you speak on it. <laughs> yeah. How did it become one of my main goals? That's what I keep asking God. Uh, I, I have, I jokingly call myself a Jonah or an unwilling apologist. So I, I, mean, I just want to write music. I want to be a band director. I want to use apologetic books. <laughs> well, 
I'm very Portland, Oregon. Like I just want to go sit on a beach with my dog and a kite, you know, and just fly my kite and let's everybody get along and be cool with each, you know, nice to each other. So that'll be the uh, quote whenever we, we, we uh, promote the uh, podcast on social media, you know, you quote like a, a moving line from it. We'll just put Mary Jo Sharp is Jesus copy of pagan myth. I just want to sit on the beach and fly my kite and that'll be the, uh, <laughs> the promo That's right. piece. So that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> so the reason I got into all of this or how I got into all of this was again, it was like out of my own, like you were saying out of my own search. Um, and as I started finding answers and I started coming around to the point, I actually came, it, I'm writing about this and I, I think we were going to discuss this. Yeah, so absolutely. Jump, no, get, in, get into it now. Yeah. What's yeah. I'm writing about my story and one of the things that happened was when I started seeing all this hypocrisy in the church and by hypocrisy, I mean, what I was reading about the great love that Christians are supposed to have for one another and this great community that I saw developing in the New Testament, I was not finding almost at all ever in any way. And it shocked me that I wasn't finding that in the churches in which I was participating. So that became a huge emotional doubt uh, instigator. And that's what caused me to say, well, what did I really do? And I got to the point where I was like, and do I really want this to be true? Because if it's not, I could just go back to what I was doing before, you know, kite, beach, dog, and just be okay, right? Bands. And I'd be all right. I'd have to eat a little crow or whatever, but I'd be all right. And I got to that point where I was kind of hoping it wasn't true so I could return. <laughs> and then what, so I went looking, but I realized that that's like intellectually not, you can't just buttress what you want to be true. You got to go find if it is. So I started looking for those answers, listening to debates. And as I started finding out that I actually thought Christianity was true, then I thought, oh man, I bet there are other people in the church that have these doubts, that have this problem. And it looks like I've been equipped to help. <laughs> so I'm going to, I started teaching it in the church. That's where I started. And then I found this degree program at Biola University while I was looking for a degree in a master's in music education. And are those the most two opposite masters in music, <laughs> master in apologetics? Yeah, and I, I just like the music education one wasn't working out, and it, it caused like why wasn't that working out? And then all of a sudden, I saw this apologetics degree, and I, I told my husband, I was like, I, I'm gonna do this, this is what I'm gonna do. And he didn't even know at the time what apologetics was, so <laughs> he had to go look it up. But uh, that's what. That sort of started me into this. Uh, there was a homework assignment in which we were challenged to do a blog, which I avoided like the plague and just did a private conversation. And because I avoided the blog, which to me was really public, I didn't want to be so public with my Christianity. And because I avoided that, it started to bother me like, well, why didn't I want to be public? Why wouldn't I stand up for what I believe? I'm not that kind of person. I usually back what I believe. Why is this different? And it bothered me until I finally gave in and said, I'm fine, I'm putting up the blog and I'll defend the resurrection. <laughs> and from that, uh, just a ton of ministry um, unfolded. And I also used to run around with David Wood and Nabil Qureshi early on. And they were pushers, man. They pushed me into debates. They pushed me into doing a lot of stuff. So that's how this developed. <laughs> so uh, th do you have an official title yet? Is that public information for what you're working on right now, the new work? Oh, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. If you don't have a real title, are you supposed to share possible ones or not? <laughs> you, could, you, could, you could. Probably not, but you could. 
Yeah. Oh, well, I think this one's fantastic. Um, and if it sticks, then uh, you'll be the first people to know. Okay. Um, one of my colleagues at Houston Baptist University said when he listened to what my story, the story of the hypocrisy and the pain experienced in church and all that, he said, oh, you know what? This is useful friction. <laughs> useful friction. So, yeah, it may, if you find that out on the stores or if you see that out in the stores, it's probably my story. Got it. Got it. Where, where can our listeners find your work, uh, maybe some of your books, your website, your social media handles? We'd love to point people in your direction. You don't only, only deal with this issue, of course, you deal with a, a wide range of issues. And so we'd love for them to be able to get a hold of your work in whatever format it, it may appear. Yeah, thank you. Um, they can go to confidentchristianity.com, uh, which is my website. They can also go to... Um, uh, they can go to HBU's site, uh, Houston Baptist University, their Master of Arts in Apologetics. There's information about me there and how to connect with me. Uh, we also have an online degree program, fully online degree program in apologetics, so people can study with me because I'm one of the professors. And yes, I'm grading the papers. <laughs> That's me teaching and grading. Uh, so they can connect with me there. Also, I have, I'm on Twitter, just Mary Jo Sharp. And uh, I'm on Instagram as well, also Mary Jo Sharp. And what else can they follow me on? I'm on so much social media, I've forgotten what all I'm on. <laughs> but those are some great ways to connect with me. Well, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast with us. We admire your work. We've been a fan. And uh, keep it up. We need, we need more voices like yours out there. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs>